Luxacult is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. We who are about to partake of each other shall walk past all amorous sickness and death, for we are within the magical equinox. Amen. We do not crucify. Nothing shall hurt us that is of the nature. Neither our comings nor goings from the womb. For we have the keys to all aesthetics. Amen. In this, the sacred moment, here occurs the symbolic eating of flesh and blood. We forget our enemies. Therefore, let our dead children sleep, and let our dead loves arise, so that they may too watch and enjoy our ecstasy. Let their animation be power unto our memories, and so resurge all ecstasy. For on this day there shall be no inhibitions, thou insatiable, peripheral, quadria of sex. Amen. Amen. That is me getting crazy at Babylon Rising with the Vested Ritual, reading some Austin Osmond's Spare from my album, Void Machine Adjustment. Greetings and welcome to Lexicult. This is a podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the Latin and most other languages, and also discuss a variety of occult and esoteric and adjacent topics, exploring the intersections of magic, art, science, spirituality, philosophy, technology, and so much more. It's occultism for everyone. I'm your host, Lux Estrada, and if you're hearing the sound of my voice, that means that this show and magic, for that matter, are for you, if you want them. There are a lot of different ways to be more free, and using magic or making space for a spiritual practice in your life can be one of them. As always, I don't speak for anybody but myself. Others can, will, and should disagree sometimes. How we ever learn anything if we all agreed all the time after all? And is the case with anyone who attempts to be reasonable, I am always willing to revise my opinions based on new evidence. Really excited to bring you a great conversation that I had with Professor Patricia McCormick about her book, The A-Human Manifesto, the topics of querying and queering chaos magic, death activism, cunt chaos magic, and so much more. Who or what is Anthropos? And how does he hold us back from new becomings and discovering ways to proceed otherwise? Professor McCormick offers some very thought-provoking points and opinions, as well as some great advice about approaching a chaos magic, occult, or spiritual practice. This is a companion episode to number 63, in which Phil Hine and I discuss his recently published collections of essays, Querying Occultures, and Acts of Magical Resistance. Neither that episode nor this one will have an episode within the episode, as they are meant to go with one another. Although presented in non-linear sequence, they are rhizomatically connected in many ways. So check out that episode next if you haven't heard it yet. Stay tuned to hear about the word rhizomatically and what it means in case you've never heard it or would like a refresher. I'm also going to share a new sound magic track I produced as part of a little side project later. That's going to be something that Flood from XV Planus, another fine green mushroom podcast network show, by the way, 
he and I will be working on here and there, which has to do with exploring the intersections of things like CE5 work, where humans try to initiate contact with extraterrestrials and other types of intelligence and occult practices like evocation. I'm also going to give you an update about what's going on with the Green Mushroom Project and share a bit of an article from Scientific American, which I found pretty interesting and which is pretty relevant to today's conversation. Before we get any further into the fun here, I'd like to say thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me and my very rad guests here on this show. As I'm fond of saying, time is, of course, one of the few zero-sum games we play. So I really do appreciate you spending some of yours here. I'm quite introverted and typically have a high volume of work. It keeps me out of trouble, so I don't use social media very much. I'm not there every day or anything like that, but that certainly doesn't mean that I don't want to hear from you all. I'm beyond lucky to have such amazing listeners and collaborators and cohorts and co-conspirators and what have you. I really appreciate how chill everybody has been thus far. Fuck yeah. I always welcome people's thoughts, questions, comments, suggestions, or arcane revelations. You can reach me at luxocultpod at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Instagram at luxocultpod. We'll do listener mail and shoutouts later on. If you like the show and the other things that I've been getting into, you can support it on Patreon. If you do so, you can take a bibliomancy break with me. There are no tiers or levels or whatever, so give as you will. And buy me a coffee is an option for those who wish to show their support with a one-time donation. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who is already doing so. Your support literally does make this show possible by allowing me to cover the expenses associated with making it, which seem to fucking climb every day. That's okay, though. That's how the world works. It's fine. But yes, it does allow me to justify the time that I spend making it by covering these expenses. So thank you so much for helping me do that. I really do love making this show, and I appreciate you making that possible. There are some ideas presented today which will possibly challenge at least one of your existing worldviews. It's certainly given me a lot to think about. Whether or not you like some of the ideas you hear, I'm guessing you agree with me that a lot of what is presented is interesting and thought-provoking and challenging. Getting into what uh, my therapist might call growth territory, perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> In a world where we see a lot of copies of copies, like the same movie being made over and fucking over again, and everybody just talking about the same thing over and over and over and over and over, new, interesting, and challenging ideas shine bright amid the doldrums. I wanted to mention this to you so that you would have the chance to sort of like emotionally prepare yourselves to hear things which might be uncomfortable or whatever. My guest has ruffled a lot of feathers and sent many people clutching at pearls, which I find pretty delightful and humorous, but I also understand that many don't share my strange outlook and sense of humor there. So a little bit of housekeeping here. I'm going to go ahead and define what the term rhizomatic means because it does come up in the interview. And it's one of those things that I do hear, you know, it's, it's an important term in philosophy. And so it comes up every once in a while. And so I thought it would be helpful to just go ahead and define it for y'all real quick. Okay, so going to the ultimate authority, Wikipedia. So in botany, it means a horizontal underground stem, which some plants make. You could think about like uh, a mint plant is something that makes a lot of rhizomes. It has like these stems that grow underground and then it can like pop back up again. So in philosophy, though, rhizomatic is a concept developed by Deleuze and Gutierrez. And it describes an approach that allows for multiple non-hierarchical entry and exit points in data representation and interpretation. A rhizome, in like its botanical origin, unlike trees or their roots, connects to any point, to any other point, 
and its traits are not necessarily linked to traits of the same nature. Uh, that was surprisingly lucid definition was actually from <laughs> Urban Dictionary, so thanks to Happy Bird for that. Fuck yeah. <laughs> um, a rhizome is a concept in post-structuralism, back to Wikipedia, describing a nonlinear network, and refers to networks that establish connections between semiotic chains, organizations of power, and circumstances relative to the arts, science, and social struggles, with no apparent order or coherency. A rhizome is purely a network of multiplicities that are not arborescent, which means tree-like, like think of the word arbor day, so arborescent is tree-like, with properties similar to lattices. So thank you to Wikipedia for that, hopefully that's enough to be going on with for now for everyone. I'm not sure how well fungal biology was understood at the time when Deleuze and Gutierrez wrote A Thousand Plateaus, but I'm guessing that if they had known more about how hyphal networks operate, they would have chosen that as a more apt metaphor than rhizomes, which are, as I said, underground stems of plants. Don't necessarily take part in the types of gene transfers that can happen in, within a hyphal network. The green mushroom hyphocedral web is a great example of how this looks as a biological metaphor applied to magic. So stay tuned after the interview for an update about the Green Mushroom Project, as well as to hear a very fun little track that I made as part of a side project that Flood from XV Planets and I are going to be working on. So this track was inspired by the strange events that happened over Rendlesham Air Force Base over December 26th through 28th in 1980. This is um, a very well-known and interesting uh, case in the sphere of ufology. I'm also going to share some of an article from Scientific American, as I said, because it's a great example of some of the things that we're going to talk about today in the interview. Speaking of which, let's get into it here. Let's get to that interview. She's been called too woke by Peter J. Carroll and a traitor to the human species by others. But find out why my guest today doesn't mind being called a cunt and perhaps why you shouldn't either. Class is now in session with Professor Patricia McCormick. Well, my guest today is Patricia McCormick, Professor of Continental Philosophy at Anglia Ruskin University. Patricia, how are you today? I'm very well. It's great to be speaking with you. Well, thank you so much for joining me. So to provide listeners with a little bit of context... I spoke with Phil Hine a couple episodes ago about a few different things, one of them being the Acts of Magical Resistance Collection. And he let me know, um, and it does say in the introduction, that a lot of this did come out of a presentation that the two of you had held together um, at Helgi's Bar in London in February of this year, 2023. And you heard a little bit of his side of the story, but I, of course, wanted to hear your thoughts on the subject. So Phil and I have known each other for quite a while and one of the reasons why we were initially interested in getting together and doing some work together was because both of us share obviously a passion for chaos magic but within that we are interested in the queering and querying of chaos magic because Stereotypically and traditionally, obviously, it's usually something that has been nurtured by white, masculine, heteronormative and pseudo-capitalist kind of attitudes towards magical thinking and action. 
And the second related to that is that, yeah, both of us are also kind of quite interested in the idea of an anti-capitalist version of chaos magic, which has consequences in terms of a social understanding of the purpose of performing rituals for the greater good for minoritarianism, for what we would term diversity, but what Phil and I are more interested in as a sort of radical alterity or otherness. And secondly, getting away from magic being something that is performed for any kind of gain, which is sort of the understanding of magic at, as it has become more popularised recently where rituals are done, whether they're gains for pseudo-wellness or gains for outcomes in general. Uh, both Phil and I have always been interested in the use of magic and chaos magic in terms of catalyzing projects of becoming and unraveling identities without any destinations or any end game ideology attached to them. So, of course, in terms of activism and in terms of these things being performed for outcomes, when we're thinking about outcomes, they're very tactical rather than strategic and they're very experimental. So an outcome can simply be a change, a shift in patterns, a new performance of thinking resistance. And so those are the two areas that Phil and I share in our attitude toward the purposefulness of magic and the shifting away from magic as a power or as defined by an incremental empowerment of the magus or of the sorceress toward a much more generalised undoing of subjectivity and identity in general. I like this idea of maybe outcomes versus results. Yeah, so I've always found results-based magic to be, shall we say, on the border of dogmatic belief. Hmm. So when people talk about results, this sets up magic in an almost neo-capitalist but also mathematical way where the power of the individual becomes directly correlative with the success or failure or the satisfaction or lack thereof of the outcome. And I don't think of magic in that way because that turns it into a very enclosed performance. And um, for me, magic is a way of living. It's not a demarcated part or project of one's daily life. So magical thinking is a mode of operation perpetually and also an experimentation of self perpetually. And so if one does a ritual and the outcome is not as planned, then you start to measure yourself as you would in any other kind of neo-capitalist context in terms of your career or your wealth or whatever, which is success or failure. And I think that's kind of absurd. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in order to do this kind of results-based thinking, we really do have to rely pretty heavily on whatever model we're choosing to use to measure this result or failure, as you pointed out, and that gives a lot of power to that model. Yeah, and I think modality and measurement are exceeded by magical thinking. Magical thinking is something that dissipates 
rather than creates models. And it's something that is immeasurable because it's both infinitesimal and infinite. And that's what I think is the joyful thing about magic, that it's wild and it's untamable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that while I am interested in the early work of chaos magic and its relationship that was set up with physics, I also think it shares a lot more with um, cosmic relativity rather than the sort of measurability of quantum mechanics. So I think that even in that sense, enslaving chaos magic to a quantum mechanics model doesn't really allow it to uh, flourish in a way that a more Austin Spare version of the infinite and the infinite in man, which comes from a, a Nietzschean perspective, and then post-nature and post-spare, the infinite of beyond masculinity, beyond man, beyond anthropos, really allows us to be fostered by with chaos magic. I love that. So we have chaos magic, as you noted, like sort of existing in this kind of paradigm of capitalism, this almost kind of like, you know, coming from this kind of male point of view and everything. And we see this character Anthropos here, but this is chaos magic too. Is there is a sort of natural tension there between these principles of chaos and this character? Yeah. So I've always been a little bit confounded by the figure of Anthropos and especially this idea of transcendental attainment toward what we would understand, for example, from the medieval era as the Vitruvian Anthropos, but from um, a modern and a postmodern perspective, the idea of the template of species human as this white, able-bodied, pretty much heteronormative male. Because when you look at the history of occultism, it is a history of hybridity and of the celebration of the fact that all organisms are in their own being chaotic chaotic biologically, chaotic in terms of their resistance to genus or species. You know, we all are not quite anthropos enough and also far more than anthropos. And when you think about chaos magic beyond outcome, beyond capitalism, beyond heteronormativity in a queer perspective, anthropos has actually been much more detrimental to both ethics and to the celebration of chaos esoterica because it is a limiting template and I would have thought that something like transcendentalism should be about the death of anthropos and you see this a lot in obviously Buddhism and in say for example Phil Klein's work on Tantra and my own work on a human theory and also my current work on death activism which is about the death of Anthropos as being absolutely necessary as the opening for the world. You see it also in the work of Bataille's Asophilus, you know, the headless man. Yes, yeah. And in the work of Deleuze and Guattari on becoming and uh, especially becoming animal and becoming imperceptible. But from a, a really highly contemporary point of view, it also is a way in which we can celebrate difference without 
relegating differences to the ghetto of being defined and therefore being atrophied through definition because anthropos is above all the definition of the human as man. I'm wondering, Anthropus is sort of this kind of um, maybe god monster we might call him. Well, we um, like monsters, so let's not call him a god monster. But okay. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, you, you have the, the ancient Greek Anthropos is the man that was made god through the fires from heaven. And then in the Reformation, Anthropos is man as the simulacrum of God, so the little god, the microcosm god. So he's the god that we need to have monsters. In order to have monsters, we need Well, we are the monsters when (laughs) we repudiate Anthropos, yeah. So it's, it's just this idea that every age has had that the ultimate owner or master, whether it's of the self or of the world, is this man as god. But unlike Nietzsche's man as God, who is Zarathustra, who is actually the little child who knows nothing, who lies down with the lion in harmony because it's the unlike that create the most imagination and the most potential. Anthropos seeks to manipulate and to order the chaotic world, whereas if we kill Anthropos, we are the very becoming of the world because, you know, we create unlike connections, we create perverse participations, and we are not seeking to attain a template. We are seeking to experiment with the infinite potentialities of these unnatural participations with all of that which Anthropos is not. Fuck yeah, I love it. So I've been reading the A Human Manifesto, and I'm glad that you brought up Nietzsche because honestly, <laughs> I don't think I've gotten as like stirred up about like reading somebody's writing since reading Nietzsche as a young person. So I've really, really been enjoying it. And I'm hoping we could talk a little bit about that in terms of a magical practice and killing Anthropos. And for people listening right now, like what kind of pictures might that look like or, you know, actions or... What activisms or other things like that might people be thinking about as ways to approach something like this? Well, I think that most activisms, sadly, in this day and age, are based on this mythologization that recognition equals equality. So a lot of people fight for identity politics and in particular their own identity. And I absolutely understand that. I understand the need for it. I think it has a place. So, you know, as a queer person, as a woman, I understand that I'm a, I am a radical feminist and I, I, not a turfy one, but a, you know, radically <laughs> feminist person, um, as can be seen in my development of cunt chaos magic. But I am, I, I, you know, and I, I, I am a radically queer fighter for recognition and equality, but I also think that we have been seduced into a ruse that, being recognised as sovereign subjects defined by that subjectivity will therefore lead us to equality, whereas I think that what we need to do is dismantle Anthropos because that means that we no longer want to attain his level, which is the ruse of equality. But instead, by doing that, we can make space for absolute indefinable otherness, and that's really what a jubilantly 
chaotic world looks like. It looks like a world where we don't need to be defined in order to have liberty. And um, so that's where something like, for example, radical animal rights comes into my work because I think that we need to fight for the other that we can never know. And that, to me, is an incredibly chaotic activist practice because usually we, we want the other to prove their worth in order to fight for their liberty. But I think that is something that needs to be turned around where we are no longer defined in ourselves but we are defined by the chaotic practices into which we can enter in order to create space for the other to exist with liberty and freedom. And so in terms of whether it's something like chaos practice where we are looking for new techniques of activism because all of us obviously if we if we belong to activist communities sometimes we run out of ideas i think that chaos magic practices can really help to allow us to dismantle ourselves in order to think of new pathways and new escape routes where we can then create new potentials for acting differently if something hasn't worked we can try a new thing and also we can we can really exploit our glamour in terms of using ritual to make people attentive to certain situations or issues because whether or not people understand magic, it is something that draws attention. So some of the things that I've discussed and also Phil and I have discussed in our work together are you know, the kinds of flash mob rituals you can do or hexing buildings, uh, sigilisation on statues, because now in Britain we're no longer allowed to pull down statues, so instead we just put sigils on them and it it scares the fuck out of people and, frankly, (laughs) whether they understand the sigil or not. (laughs) Some part of them understands it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a real, you know, it reorients the meaning of that and so that's the beauty because the whole point of sigil magic is for yourself to forget what it means and so not understanding is I think a really a positive way to accept that one doesn't need to understand another in order to allow them freedom so that can happen in so many different kinds of manifestations and it really exploits the beauty of the fact that rituals are for me especially above and beyond everything else uh, artistic practices, you know, developing a ritual, creating a ritual, performing a ritual is a practice that is artistic. It's not a an obedience to a set out law. It is something that you create, whether it's just on your own or with other people. And just as the ritual itself is a creative practice, the outcome would therefore be a creative practice. So that means that activism is more or less effective, but it never fails. And also it isn't bound. It's an unbound form of activism, which I think is particularly important at this time when, you know, the the enemy is constantly metamorphosing. So we also have to be able to do the same. Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely want to hear more about Cunt Chaos Magic, but I was hoping we could talk a little bit about who or what the ahuman is and maybe how that might be different or not different than people's ideas of transhuman. Well, first of all, transhumans 
love Anthropos and they want it to live forever and they don't care what form it takes. All they want is for eternity. And to me, that relegates transhumanism to the same arena as, for example, Christianity or any other kind of faith that believes in eternal life. Um, they're just doing it in a different way, but their faith and their overvaluation of man as God is persistent. Um, I developed the concept of the ahuman because what I wanted to do is to deliver philosophy from its enslavement to a Cartesian understanding of binaries and of dividing everything into binaries. And we, we know we live in a world where everything is defined by what it is not. So we have man and woman, and this is why the concept of trans in terms of gender identity makes people so upset because even if trans identity is accepted in certain legislation, it still remains in this either-or situation. And this is also true of race. You know, people are white or they are not white and they are treated accordingly and usually pretty badly again with sexuality it's like you're either hetero or homo and I still think that people find the concept of bisexuality quite challenging it's true of class especially in Britain at this time but and 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 then it's true also of the idea of the human and the animal and it's it's this 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 general concept where there's a dominant term which is usually you know the usual anthropos suspect of the white hetero able-bodied male upper class western you know all all those things and then the opposite is not even defined on its own terms so when we talk about male and female we're not really talking about female defined on one's own terms we're talking about a failure so a failure should be the dominant a failure should be male so you know a sissy boy is on the side of the female or a gay person and then again with whiteness, we have whiteness and then we have a failure to pass as white. And this failure to pass as anthropos uh, shows that even in a culture that is binary in this Cartesian perspective, it is actually isomorphically binary. So it is not A and B, it's an A and a failure to be A. And this is what really feeds the contemporary bifurcation of society in general we have a hard left and a hard right we have hard truth and hard fake news we have and sadly at the moment it seems to me I'm not sure what it's like where you are but in Britain we have this kind of woke culture and then we've got tradition culture and I've been called out by Pete Carroll for being you know woke too woke and I think woke at all is too woke. And I took that as a massive compliment, actually. Um, I probably would too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's brilliant. I You know, so good. I'm too woke. But it, that's also a form of enchantment because what does that even mean? I don't know what being called woke means by someone who takes it as a slur when I take it as a compliment. And it's very similar in that sense to being called queer because, yeah, I am. So what do you want me to do about that? Do, I'm sorry know? I'm threatening exactly. you. <laughs> well, yeah. It, it, so... So these kind of hard binaries and then this idea that words that are taken that are taken as compliments are given as slurs and vice versa, when you put the prefix A in front of something, it occupies that interstitial space between. So it is both and neither. Just as queer is both and neither hetero and homo, 
and say genderqueer is both and neither male and female. So a human is acknowledging, for example, that I belong to the species human and therefore I am responsible and accountable for what has been perpetrated by humans. It avoids the fetishization of non-human animals that sometimes happens in post-human philosophy where becoming animal is taken as some kind of fetish without acknowledging that an animal has their own agency and their own experience. And then it also refuses to be human. So it is what I've been called a traitor to my species. So <laughs> acknowledging that acknowledging that counting as anthropos is not the most attractive and wonderful thing you can desire, but is in fact something that is for a certain kind of person with a certain kind of love for a certain kind of power. And so in that sense, putting the A in front of a human takes it out of both binaries and it takes it out of definition itself. And that obviously resonates with chaos magic, which is everything and nothing, which is the interstitial, which is the the most minute and the most cosmically enormous. And so it really contests the word human in any variety of ways and also, most importantly, contests the idea that counting as human is the most attractive thing. So it, it is this becoming monstrosity. It's the, the teratology of experiments in identity that takes us out of wanting to count as sovereign subjects. Yeah, I love that. And a lot of what I've been taking away so far, at least for me and my own way of thinking, my background is in science. So my head is very much full of, you know, all of these models. You know, as a scientist, I understand that they're models and I don't take them as like dogmatic truths, but they're still in there. And I like the idea of like moving away from all of these, you know, lenses that we've put on the world and really trying to experience it in a more authentic way. And that's something that I think is really beautiful about a lot of what you've written too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that we sometimes, you know, I'm not anti-science at all, but science has a tendency to disavow its own lack of neutrality as well mm -hmm. as the big question or the big thing which is in science, which is in all forms of signification systems, is that you can name something but we always attach a value to that name or a purpose to that name and that is the problem. Naming something tactically because it's useful is not a problem in itself but having a value attached to that name. So when we say the word woman, we never just mean a certain form of genitals. There's always a social and ideological and even a scientific attachment to that signifier. And that's where we come into the problems. You know, how do we how do we start to think in a way without attaching values to those thoughts always? And those values are always residual from culture, from ideology, but also especially from power. You know, am I above or below that? Mm -hmm. And I also should mention that I stole, you know, the use of the prefix A from Felix Guattari's work on asemiosis, which is the idea that, you know, semiotics names something, but every signifier has a signified, which means that every name has an attached value. So how can we think about signifying things without having these attached values or by changing those values and I think that in chaos magic we do that a lot we'll say all right well this is a this is an evil entity but I am going to summon them as a benevolent entity so you're fucking around with the traditional signifiers and we also see that in 
the hermaphrodite forms of different and various uh, schema, such as Baphomet being the most obvious one, and also in a lot of the distortion and playing around with the Goetian demons where we give them qualities that they are not attributed, that's a form of asemiosis. It's changing the value and seeing what happens and showing that all of those attributions have always been arbitrary and invested with what the human wants from these definitions. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is definitely an interaction. Yeah, and we, we also we get defined also as much by what we are not, what is above and below us. So there's something deeply anti-hierarchical in both my magical practice and in my work. I think that as soon as something is put in a hierarchical place in relation to something else, it's no longer related, it is subjected. Mm-hmm. So I like the idea of a more rhizomatic relatability, which is you know, much more in tune with um, traditional physics. And so in that sense, is much more chaotic. Yeah, absolutely. Fuck yeah. So can I hear a little bit about Cunt Chaos Magic? So Cunt Chaos Magic is a um, one of the earliest things I developed, actually, and it was the first paper I gave at Treadwells, which is an occult bookshop in London that has a lecture series, and I will actually be giving the uh, Chaos Activism talk with Phil again at Treadwells in November. Um, and in 2003, I gave a paper at Treadwells on something I was experimenting with. That was, I should say, when I was still academically in the closet about being uh, an occultist because (laughs) um, back then, you know, you couldn't really tell, in academia especially, you couldn't tell people that you were a practising occultist because they would think that you were uh, either psychotic or delusional or a little creepy. Um, (laughs) And I I was already, you know, relegated to, to those arenas enough without having to add that to it but so I I was doing work with the philosophy that I teach and publish on but I was sort of making strange bedfellows with that and chaos magic work so I am deeply influenced by the work of Luce Rigore a French feminist philosopher and she structures her most famous argument on the model of the vulva and the two lips not simply as a literal manifestation of a challenge to patriarchy, but also as a way to think about the world in a multiplicity or as a multiplicity rather than as a binary or as a single monolithic structure of power. So in our society, we live in a phallocentric society, which has the model of the penis as the singular, um, the hard, all of those qualitative attributes mm-hmm. uh, and it is a it intrudes it's beats it, it's a truncheon it's a gun it's a you know a rocket ship to mars to make sure everyone knows how hard and strong and phallic you are <laughs> so she she creates this model of the vulva which is directly correlated with the actual vulva um of 
tulips and also of the idea of female genitalia as multiplicity. So it sounds pretty rudimentary, but, you know, when you're a little kid and you're taught what we now know is a fairly arbitrary division of the sexes as genital, we're taught about the penis and the vagina. But a vagina is an empty space that is modelled on a lack of penis. It's not actually, you know, women don't just have vaginas and -hmm. some women don't have them at all. But this idea of an, an equivalent model that is a vacuous space, whereas women, as we know, have undefined and illicit genitalia that is both and more than the vagina, the vulva, the two lips, the two sets of two lips, the clitoris, the, you know, this idea of multiplicity and of a rhizomatic connectivity. And, you know, there is no start or end when we talk about that. And so she uses this model to extend that to things like, for example, discourse, where instead of having a speaker who enunciates truth, we have the two lips, which is people speaking together And the space in between is where truth happens. And so the two lips is also representative of two speakers speaking together as a mediated conversation rather than as an enunciation by the master. And then, again, this idea of there is no beginning and end, there is no uh, edict, instead there is a fluid conversation. And so the two lips model also has this idea of the mucosal fluidity which is formally considered abject because, as we all know, sperm is considered some kind of holy relic, whereas any any mucosal mention of the vulvic is considered something disgusting that should be concealed. But actually we all live in a vulvic mucosal relation with each other. We, As we know, you know, we are rubbing constantly against each other, metaphorically if not actually. And so I, I really love that work of hers and... I still think it also remains somewhat in the illicit because, you know, even my students still recoil having to say words like vulva and mucus, and uh, <laughs> but they're not abject, they're celebrated. And I also was a little bit tired of dude bros talking about the goddess and Babylon and I'm like, just stop fetishising this dude. Like, can you not? <laughs> and you're not special because you're not scared of, mucus or menstrual blood you're not you know it it just always seemed very fetishistic and very tedious whereas the vulvic model is not something that includes or excludes men or women and it is not something indeed that is gendered you can have the two lips model that is attachable to the penis because obviously penises have two lips and you know that the whole you know the whole body can become this kind of infinite uh, it doesn't have a beginning, it doesn't have an end. It is a multiplicity of sensation, of erotogenia, but also of infinite thought. And so I developed that and I wrote a philosophy article that ended up in a journal, but they made me change the word cunt to vulva. And Arigare herself uses the word vulva. I, however, like the word cunt because just as the vulva has been considered somewhat prohibited or perverse or hidden, the word cunt is, as we know in the English language, pretty much the worst thing you can call someone. Mm -hmm. And I always wondered, A, what the definition of cunt was because cunt has no definition. Uh, What is a cunt? When you call someone a cunt, when you call someone a dick, you know what a dick is, but what is it when you call someone a cunt? It seems to embrace and celebrate that infinite ambiguity because we don't really have something in our minds. 
And also its etymology is contested. When I gave my paper at Treadwells in 2003, everyone had a different idea about where the etymology comes from. But I was very interested in, for example, the connections in Hebrew, Leviathan is that which gathers itself into folds. And that to me seemed very much relevant to the idea that the cunt as a vulva is a series of folds. And also the work of Leibniz, who talks about the way that the world is structured, is not a series of ontological separate entities, but is in fact a series of folds. And our relation with each other is a Baroque structure more than a structure where there is a background and a foreground and the background is the environment and the foreground is the figures of, say, for example, humans and animals, anthropos and other kinds of species and genus. So there was also an ethical element to the figuration of the vulva or the cunt, um, which shows our relationality to each other and the expressivity and the affects that we perpetrate or gift or whatever to each other, depending on whether they're (laughs) malevolent or benevolent. So, and I liked cunt because, you know, it's another word when people say you're a cunt, I say, thank you. That's fantastic. (laughs) I'd rather be a cunt than almost any other insult. And so, because I wasn't so interested in the results-based magic, but I was still interested in the infinity of chaos magic coming from Nietzsche and Spare, I thought that worked quite well together. So for me, cunt chaos is performing magic in that way where you unfold and refold your relationship with entities that you invoke, the way in which those entities themselves are ambiguous in terms of their desires and pleasures and sexuality and gender and also the ambiguity that comes from doing a ritual where it's both highly charged in terms of pleasure but also fear at that kind of taking risks with your own sense of identity that teetering on madness I think that's also a really important aspect for performing magic rituals that one has to really teeter on the brink and occupy the interstitial space between sanity and insanity and as we know these are things that are defined not by us but by other people So cunt chaos magic is that which embraces ambiguity, that which embraces the fluid, the mucosal, uh, the experimental, the creative and the artistic without being defined by a relationship with power, with results, with definitions and with the master-slave dialectic that happens, I think, a lot in certain forms of Goetian and some forms of chaos magic. All right. Thank you. Fuck yeah. I love it. There's a sort of juxtaposition here between like this word cunt, it, it has this sharpness to it, like this hardness and sharpness. But, you know, when we think about what it describes, it's very much the opposite. And I love that dichotomy. Absolutely. I mean, you know, cunts are ethical because they're fluid and embracing and warm and there's no master slave. You know, they, they fold in on themselves in a way in which there's always more than one. And so the idea of women lacking the penis is actually the fact that the cunt is a proliferative entity and you can easily shift that paradigm onto, you know, the penis and the testicles and the whole body. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's warm. It can be warm and comforting. And so I think that that sense of persecution that some dude bros feel about being the white hit man, it's because they're still embracing the figuration 
of the penis's phallus rather than trying to reconfigure the flesh as infinite. So you could be becoming cunt and be a dude bro and that would deliver you from your persecution complex and from your dude broism. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I'm hoping that we could talk a little bit about your death activism. Is that okay? Yeah, great. Yeah. So I've I've just completed a Levy Hume Fellowship doing a project on death activism where I spoke at a number of different places around the world on this idea of embracing death. And there are many different ways that I advocate for embracing death. The first and most obvious way for what we've already discussed is the dismantling of the worship of the sovereign subject as anthropos. So we need to stop wanting to be this dominant figuration of the human as God. Um, so that's the first death. That's the most obvious death. That's quite an abstract death. And I think all activisms base their premise on the death of that. But I also think that on a very practical level, there are a lot of deaths that we should be fighting against that we don't. And there are a lot of deaths that we should be embracing that we don't. So mm. I'm quite a suicide activist. So some of the work I've been doing has been on just not even pro-euthanasia, but acknowledging that some people just don't like life. You know, there, there is a sad but absolutely undeniable truth that some people were just not cut out to live, just as some people really want to live no matter what. We, we value that, we recognise that, we think that makes sense, but some people simply do not. And they are denied a peaceful death. They are denied euthanasia. They are denied they have to commit suicide in horrible, violent ways that sometimes are not successful and that in any case cannot be a good death. So I definitely fight for a good death and it reminds us that, you know, we feel like we're free in the West but the only thing we don't have freedom over is our own death. Our, our death belongs to society our death belongs to our governments or you know our death does not belong to us we don't have a right to die peacefully and that's quite an obvious but also shocking thing to really contemplate I think and so I am definitely a suicide advocate for good deaths under any circumstances I don't think we should have to vindicate why we want to die and I think that sometimes our society well not sometimes actually most of the time just as anti-abortion people love the fetus until it's born and then it's like you're on your own, some people are anti-suicide but they leave people in distress. You know, it's always sad when the person kills themselves but where were they when the person was alive? Mm -hmm. Or almost sometimes keeping people alive verges on bullying. Like you must call the Samaritans, you must reach out. You know, why? That's exhausting. That's like turning living into some kind of, capital job you know you must you must work to live mm. so I think that we need to really speak more to people who want to die for no reason and find out why we think life at any cost even if that life is a life that people may not find worth living whether for internal or external reasons so we also need to stop asking for reasons and then covert to that we've got this idea that there are people that are killable because of 
who or how we define what they are. So the obvious example of that is animals. You know, billions, actually billions of animals are murdered every day, but because we don't identify them as persona, we identify them as objects, we don't count their deaths. But also with humans, we talk about in philosophy at the moment, there's this concept of killability and also of um, not counting. So there's a form of life that's precarious that we don't recognise. So billionaires in submarine, a couple of billionaires in submarine in a submarine die and the world's up in arms, but thousands of refugees on a raft drown and no one cares. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about death, we're really talking about death for whom and we define death based on the value of the life and some we consider have no life value, therefore their death is unremarkable and that shows that our definition of life and death is not consistent it's consistent on the value of the subjectivity and that's deeply offensive and deeply unethical so yeah so I think that we really need to think about how we're defining death because we're not defining it the same for everyone in terms of its value and what is attached Um, and then primarily of interest for this recording I think is the idea that I personally in my practice, but also in general, historically, and in the discourse and the literature and the practices, I'm really interested in the death of the self and the death of the ego as the most critical practice for becoming an ethical person, but also for experimenting with occultism in ritual, in practice. So that includes everything from death posturing in the work of Austin Spare, which is something I haven't, I mean, I, I mention it, but I don't write on it because I think that it is something that you need to practice. And also I I think that it could be taken in a bad way in terms of current power dynamics between men and women in the same way that certain kinds of sexual play can be taken as ways in which um, uh, domestic violence against women is further perpetrated but I am a fan of the death posture and for those of your listeners who are familiar with the death posture it can be quite the reset for one's own identity and one's own mental state and so the death posture is obviously a central practice to chaos magic and I'm also interested I'm not an expert on tantra but I'm super interested in the death practices of Tibetan tantra in terms of things like corpse sitting and becoming cannibal and those practices where we encounter death so intimately that our own self must disappear. Hmm. And then in terms of basic traditions of Buddhism, but also of more post-structural and post-modern philosophy, so the kind of continental philosophy that I work in, you know, loss of self is the first step to becoming an ethical experimental entity in the world. And I use the word entity because it's not a subject. It's not who you are. You're not defined. You still act in the world. You still have agency. You still have expressions in the world that affect other agents. But you are not defined and you don't behave based on your definition, which I think is the experience of life that most of us are trained to have. We do what we expect our subjectivity to do. So our definition of our own subjectivity precedes ourselves as acting agents. Mm. And I think that um, the death of self 
allows us liberty to act more freely and to become artistic experimenters in self, in activism, in art practice or theory practice or whatever we like to practice, but also for creating entities that we can use in our rituals and that use us because it's, uh, you know, it becomes a more reciprocal experience doing rituals when you also become passive and gracious and embracing the vulnerability of self, I think, is a really powerful and experimental, joyful, scary thing to do. So there are a lot of different manifestations of death activism. And also I've been even working with uh, and looking at uh, representations of death in Death and the Maiden and the Danse Macabre as queer relationships because death in those uh, is not gendered and you get a lot of very queer dancers indeed and I think they're kind of fun. And like monsters traditionally in representations, whether they be in medieval engravings or in films, women tend to prefer the monsters and death to the dude bros, much to the chagrin of the dude bros. But, you know, we like monsters. Queer, queer people like monsters and we are monsters. And in a lot of ways, minoritarians have always been the monsters. And so you have to ask if we never counted, have we always been dead? You know, we are the living dead. We're the, we're the vampires and the werewolves and the, you know, hairy-chested feminists and the living dead disabled. And, you know, so there are so many different ways in which minoritarians have never counted as being alive and so I think being one of those living dead monsters and hanging out with other living dead monsters is always a joyful creative experience and also the liberty of not clinging on to power is a form of freedom rather than of weakness. Fuck yeah I love that. So Patricia, this is the point in the interview where I usually ask, um, is there anything that you would like to talk about that I haven't asked you about yet? Not really, actually, because I've gone from, um, I guess, my earliest representations in London when I first emigrated to my most recent work. So I think that one of the important things that I would re mention though is the I guess the DIY aspect of magical practice including chaos magic is really critical I mean I'm a tragically bookish person so when I began my magical practices when I was 15 I was a bit neurotic about making sure I'd read everything and whatever (laughs) and I think that one of the one of the sad parts is that the late the, the later books that I got to, especially because they weren't easy to access in Melbourne in the 80s and 90s, is that idea of just, just you know, do something, create something, lose yourself in something. I don't think that the way I did it was wrong, but uh, I, I think that we're getting more queer and feminist and BIPOC uh, written works on magic now but sadly the heritage is primarily of a certain tradition that would be anthropocentric. So I would just encourage an exploration of some of the weird literature that's kicking about now. And I think that we're seeing a beautiful reimagining of magic, including chaos magic, that does belong 
to minoritarians, but that also belongs to minoritarians who are not interested in identity politics, but are interested in experiments in identity. So, yeah, I think it's really flourishing at the moment and that makes me really happy. And I also think that the other thing that's flourishing is a lot more communal work that's not done in orders or covens. I think that's quite nice. I think that de-hierarchicisation of orders is being celebrated even by, you know, very well-known people in in magic. So people like Duquette, who obviously is important in Thalema as an order but also is really celebratory of dismantling hierarchy and DIY magic. So I think that I, I guess that that is one little hangover that we are all become our own gods but with that comes responsibility and also that those gods don't look like Anthropos, they are cosmic and imperceptible. So I'm sure that your listeners all already know all that and already are quite DIY, but um, uh, especially for young queers and young feminists, I hope that they leap right in and know that they're already monsters and they're already dead, so they should be indulging and celebrating that rather than trying to attain any ideal of the magus. Fuck yeah. Well, Patricia, thank you so much. Where can my listeners find your work? Well, my books are available on any bookshop. Um, uh, the Ahim Manifesto is relatively reasonably priced, but unfortunately my other books are academic books, so they might be a bit of a stretch, but you can also ask your local libraries to order them. And I also have a number of journal articles that are freely available on the internet and if you Google me, you can also see the uproar that my work has caused where the Daily Mail called me a witch professor in an <laughs> outraged manner, calling for the end of the world. Um, so there's some pretty fun stuff. There's lots of hate there. There's lots of death threats there, but also lots of positive things too. So, yeah, I guess the other thing would be be prepared because, you know, we all get our 15 minutes of hate these days. So... Uh, again, being called a um, professor witch was intended as a deep insult and it really missed its mark because I thought, <laughs> like, That almost sounds like an accurate description. Yeah, and they, they, the, the fun thing was they trawled through, like, photos to try and find the photos where I'm super gothed up and they were so outraged that somebody who looked like me and was an occultist was also a professor that... You could hear the hear the tears, and I loved it very much. Um, I love it too. But yeah, so my work's freely available if you just Google me, or you can buy my books from Bloomsbury or Routledge, or you can get your library to order them. And I do a lot of events all over the world. And as I said, Phil and I have the Chaos Querying Chaos Activism coming up in November. So uh, there's always opportunities to hang out and share work. All right. Well, fantastic. It's not every day that one has the opportunity to speak to a traitor for the human race. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for your work and for taking the time to talk with me today. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners and I with? Just if somebody calls you a witch as an insult or a cunt as an insult, you take it. Fuck yeah. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you. Yeah,
All right, fuck yeah. Thanks so much to Professor Patricia McCormick. Check out the A Human Manifesto and her other work. Like I mentioned before, I haven't felt as like fired up reading something since I read Nietzsche for the first time as a young person. Whether her ideas make you angry, confused, or want to bump your fists in the air in triumph, or perhaps some combination of these things, they'll certainly challenge some notions you might have about the world, and this can be a huge gift. I know I consider it to be one. As some people are fond of saying, I found a lot of instances of it on something that used to be called Twitter. True visionaries are rarely appreciated in their own time. I have a feeling that Patricia Bohormick's work will make a lasting impact on how people who encounter it will see the world and some aspects of their life. I'm going to come back to this in a moment, as well as to share about the project that followed from XV Planis and I are working on. And I will share that sound magic track related to that at the end of the episode, too. I wanted to address a few things that come up in the interview. Oh yeah, I'll also do a, a Green Mushroom Project update as well. But yeah, just a couple of thoughts that I wanted to share first. So Patricia commented about how certain types of sexual play can quickly become abuse situations or disguise them or other adjacent things like that. And this is very true. We've discussed this a little bit on Smuts Up, actually. And I would make the case that this is also very true of ritual situations, which I can say from a personal experience. It's an unfortunate fact there are a lot of people out there who abuse power in ways that cause coercive situations where people feel they need to participate in something or like suffer some kind of social consequence or whatever. The concept of consent in magic and consent magic, like the magical properties of consent, is something I've been thinking a lot about lately and I'm doing some work with. I plan to explore this further in the future too. I feel like I've said this before, but it bears repeating so you might even hear me say it again. We don't live in a culture where the concept of consent is like respected or even very well understood. All the gross rapey shit that you see in like so-called romantic comedies and other places like that demonstrates that pretty well in my opinion. It might be acceptable in other communities, spiritual or otherwise, to harbor those who have displayed predatory patterns of behavior, but I think that we can and should do better. I think we should also question authority wherever we encounter it. And remember that as a magician, a witch, or whatever brand of magical operant you consider yourself to be, there is no higher magical authority than one's own instinct, intellect, intuition, and experience. No one can tell you the correct way to do magic for you. No one has access to some secret esoteric thing that is worth any rings being kissed to obtain either. That's why I'm not a member of any fraternal magical organization with a hierarchical structure, nor have I ever been. No shade to anybody who's into that stuff, it's just not for me. I came close once, but I saw enough to want to get the fuck away. These types of things are games of social power, in my opinion, not of magical power per se. It's important to keep those distinctions in mind if one wishes to work with others. Uh, there are, unfortunately, a lot of creeps out there. Question authority, even if it's only quietly in your head or whatever. Speaking of questioning authority, Let's question the so-called objectivity of science and the authority it claims on this basis. I wanted to share a little bit of an article from Scientific American because it's a fantastic example of some of what Patricia McCormick and I discussed here today regarding some of the lack of objectivity we see in science, as well as some other topics. There are a lot of things that we've been taught are like cold, hard, true, actual facts, which upon closer examination are sort of like silly, made-up notions and might not have a lot of grounding in reality. When I was doing some automatic writing for my last album, this kind of came up for me as like, you know, maps being drawn on top of maps until we, you know, mistake these maps for territory, meaning that we forget that our descriptions of things or the way that we perceive and contextualize them 
are constructs that we've created and not the actual thing. Don't just question authority, question assumptions and uh, your own worldviews as well. So here's the article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's pretty long, but I encourage you to go check it out because it's very interesting. I put a link to it in the show notes. It's called The Theory That Men Evolved to Hunt and Women Evolved to Gather is Wrong by Kara Akabach and Sarah Lacey. Even if you're not an anthropologist, you've probably encountered one of the field's most influential notions, known as man the hunter. The theory proposes that hunting was a major driver of human evolution and that men carried this activity out to the exclusion of women. It holds that human ancestors had a division of labor rooted in biological differences between males and females, in which males evolved to hunt and provide and females tended to children and domestic duties. It assumes that males are physically superior to females and that pregnancy and child rearing reduces or eliminates a female's ability to hunt. Man the Hunter has dominated the study of human evolution for nearly half a century and pervaded popular culture. It is represented in museum dioramas and textbook figures, Saturday morning cartoons, and feature films. The thing is, it's wrong. Mounting evidence from exercise science indicates that women are physiologically better suited than men to endurance efforts such as running marathons. This advantage bears on questions about hunting because a prominent hypothesis contends that early humans are thought to have pursued prey on foot over long distances until the animals were exhausted. Furthermore, the fossil and archaeological records, as well as ethnographic studies of modern-day hunter-gatherers, indicate that women have a long history of hunting game. We still have much to learn about female athletic performance and the lives of prehistoric women. Nevertheless, the data we do have signal that it's time to bury Man the Hunter for good. The theory rose to prominence in 1968 when anthropologist Richard B. Lee and Irvin DeVore published Man the Hunter, an edited collection of scholarly papers presented at a 1966 symposium on contemporary hunter-gatherer societies. The volume drew on ethnographic, archaeological, and paleoanthropological evidence to argue that hunting is what drove human evolution and resulted in our suite of unique features. Man's life as a hunter supplied all the other ingredients for achieving civilization. The genetic viability, the inventiveness, the systems of vocal communication, the coordination of social life. Anthropologist William S. Laughlin writes in chapter 33 of the book, Because men were supposedly the ones hunting, proponents of the man-the-hunter theory assumed evolution was acting primarily on men, and women were merely passive beneficiaries of both the meat supply and the evolutionary progress. But man-the-hunter's contributors often ignored evidence, sometimes in their own data, that countered their suppositions. For example, Hitashi Watanabe focused on the ethnographic data about the Anu, an indigenous population in northern Japan and its surrounding areas. Although Watanabe documented Anu women hunting, often with the aid of dogs, he dismissed this finding in his interpretations and placed the focus squarely on men as the primary meat winners. He was superimposing the idea of male superiority through hunting onto the Anu and into the past. This fixation on male superiority was the sign of the times, not just in academia, but in society at large. In 1967, the year between the Man the Hunter conference and the publication of the edited volume, 20-year-old Catherine Switzer entered the Boston Marathon under the name 
K.V. Switzer, which obscured her gender. There were no official rules against women entering the race, it just wasn't done. When officials discovered that Switzer was a woman, race manager Jock Semple attempted to push her physically off of the course. At that time, the conventional wisdom was that women were incapable of competing such physically demanding tasks and that attempting to do so could harm their precious reproductive capacities. Scholars following the Man the Hunter dogma relied on this belief in women's limited physical capacities and the assumed burden of pregnancy and lactation to argue that only men hunted. Women had children to rear. Today, these biased assumptions persist in both the scientific literature and the public consciousness. Granted, women have recently been shown hunting and moving such as Prey, the most recent installment of the popular Predator franchise, and on cable programs such as Naked at Afraid and Women Who Hunt, but social media trolls have viciously critiqued and labeled these depictions as part of a politically correct feminist agenda. They insist the creators of such works are trying to rewrite gender roles and evolutionary history in an attempt to co-opt, quote, traditionally masculine social spheres. Bystanders might be left wondering whether portrayals of women hunters are trying to make the past more inclusive than it really was, or whether the man the hunter style assumptions about the past are an attempt to project sexism backwards in time. Our recent survey of the physiological and archaeological evidence for hunting capability and sexual division of labor and human evolution answers this question. And the question is, by the way, it's the second one. It's sexism being projected into the past, in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> Thank you so much to Kara Alkavok and Sarah Lacey. So the article goes on to like elucidate some different concepts of sex and gender, as well as examining some of the recent evidence from exercise science. And it's a pretty good read. Um, a great example of why it's important to remember that science is a method, an activity, an approach, rather than an arbiter of absolute truth. It's like a stupid look, I think, when the church does it, and it's even worse when it's coming from those who should know better within the spheres of science. Anyway, we need people who are brave enough, like Professor Patricia McCormick, uh, who, by the way, is incredibly fucking brave, and I do respect that a lot. We need people to be brave enough to stand up and say, you know, wait, wait a minute, I have some questions about what you're telling me, you know, like, uh, and some of them are difficult. In some of my circles, we talk about the idea of how to proceed otherwise, shout out to Joy, when we look around and see that so many systems are failing us, how do we build something better in a way that doesn't throw out the baby with the bathwater and repeat the mistakes of the past? We can recognize the places where things are failing, in some cases, a lot of cases, failing because they're failing to adapt, and point out the problems with them. But how do we proceed otherwise when we're focusing on these problems? I suspect that this is another instance where a sort of like dialectic or whatever is necessary, a tightrope walk between two things. This comes up in my magical practice often. Things are seldom entirely one way or the other, and nuanced layers of meaning can be discovered through intellectual investigation and somatic experience. So when many paths seem to lead back to Anthropos as the ideal, how do we proceed otherwise into new and interesting places in magic? It's worth thinking about. Another thing I think that's interesting to consider is this idea of man the hunter and this being thought of as kind of like this source. And of course, not everybody thinks this way, but there's this kind of conception in broad culture that men are more violent and women are more passive. And this is because of this past of hunting, this man the hunter idea. And if that's not true, 
there's obviously something else going on there, which is interesting to consider. If neither males nor females have a monopoly on violence or whatever due to, like, biological reasons from our past or whatever, what is the source of this? Alright, I'm gonna go ahead and do listener mail and shoutouts here. Shout out and thank you very much to Aiden Walker and Lonnie Scott of the Weird Web Radio Podcast for saying all that nice stuff about my work during the recent episode where Aiden was a guest. I put a link to that in the show notes in case anybody wants to check it out. Aiden had been taking a little break from interacting with the public, which I can totally relate to, by the way, even though everybody's super chill, I'm just like crazy introverted. But I think people are really stoked that he's once again sharing thoughts on the interwebs. Welcome back, and I hope that you're well, dude, if you hear this. Shout out to Hot Tooth on Instagram, and thank you for the kind words. So I'm really stoked that you like the show and that it's been helpful. Fuck yeah, cheers. Greetings to Stones. It made me so glad to hear that your kitchen magic has been giving you such rad results. Fuck yeah, dude. Big thanks to Fred or Damiana, who ran what I'm told was a very dope presentation and chat on the topic of kitchen witchery recently. I'm sad to have missed it, but thank you so much. Fuck yeah. Hello to Olivia. So glad that you're enjoying the show. Thank you so much for writing. Many thanks and much love to everybody who's written and everybody who's been supporting the show by telling friends about it and posting about it on social media. Writing a positive review or giving it some stars is also a great way to help people find out about it too. Thank you also so much to everybody who is contributing on Patreon or Buy Me a Coffee to help me offset the costs of making this thing and justify the time that I spend making it to myself. I really do enjoy it and your support makes this possible. Thank you. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Rendlesham Forest UFO, as they were called back then, case here in a second, as well as closing out by sharing my new track, Eyes of Your Eyes, featuring folds and floods of XB Planis. But first, let me tell you about some of the events that we have planned on the Green Machine Discord server, home of the Green Mushroom Project and Administrism. I'm going to be leading some group ritual work tonight, Friday the 29th, during a special chat. If you're hearing this the day it comes out, on the 5th of January, this coming year of Our Lady, 2024, Allie Words will be presenting about the Bach, probably saying that wrong, apologies, a magical polysynthetic logosyllabic language that can be spoken through all forms of activity. Allie's work is super fucking cool. You can hear my conversation with them in episode 46, The Semiotician and the Machine with Allie Words and Elemental Spirits with Taylor Elwood. Saturday the 6th, we've got Six Ways by Aiden Walker book and discussion group hosted by Lavender Laura. On the 9th, Joy will be hosting the first in a series of talks about logical fallacies and magic, which I'm very stoked about. This will vibe nicely with a little something we've got cooking up at the moment behind the scenes. More on that to come. We've got Rune Study Group on the 20th, hosted by Laura, and 23 Bibliomancy will take place as usual on the 23rd. Yara will be hosting 24 Cinema Score, which is when we hang out and make fun of campy old horror movies and stuff like that on the 24th. And for Fungal Friday on the 29th, Shane Shadow Eater will share his thoughts about men's work circles, initiation, archetypal work, and that fucking shadow. This is his words. <laughs> He's been doing some work surrounding non-toxic masculinity, which I'm really excited to hear more about. Fuck yeah. 
As always, our events are hosted on the Green Machine Discord server and are free and open to anyone who wants to check them out. I mean, unless we've had to, like, ban you from the server or something like that. Luckily, that hasn't happened too very often. Open to pretty much anyone, I should say. <laughs> Let me or anybody there who's a mod know and we can get you a link to join. As always, much love and much love to everybody participating in the project, regardless of what that looks like for you in your practice. It's such a pleasure to see all the cool magic and art and shit people are getting into and to have the opportunity to learn from you all and to hang out with fucking cool people. I'm so stoked about how well things are going and none of it would be possible without the help of all of these very intelligent, kind folks that are putting in some very hard work. I really appreciate it. Thank you. As is my custom on the show, I will now recite the Statement of Resistance, which we like to do together every Friday night at midnight Eastern Time, when we light a candle with the hypho sigil and remind ourselves to resist. Resist by maintaining sovereignty of the self. Resist by maintaining love of the self. Resist by maintaining fierce loyalty to love and pleasure. Resist with acts of radical kindness. Focus on the path to better times. Fuck yeah. Alright, super stoked to share this new Sound Magic track. The day that I produced most parts of it, we recorded like some ritual work and added that later, but the music and the recording from 1980 that's in it is something that I happened upon when I sat down to try to make something else. I think I was trying to make like a meditation track or something, but that did not happen, so I do not remember what it was going to be. I entered a sort of creative fugue state and a few hours after that, uh, that I don't really remember very well. Uh, the track had emerged from this silky oblivion of the void. Gratitude. This type of thing is not atypical for me, and I try to just go with it when it comes up. I'm excited about this thing. It's one of my favorites that I've made in a little while. Uh, let me give you a little bit of context about it. As many of you know, Flood from XV Planets leads a paranormal investigation team and makes a podcast about their exploits and adventures. He and I are going to be looking at some intersections of stuff like CE5, Close Encounters 5 work, which is when humans try to initiate contact with extraterrestrials or other like types of intelligences or whatever like you want to call it, and esoteric or occult practices like evocation and things like that, with the aim of finding ways to create useful tools for people, even those who are not like trained in magic or whatever, to approach this type of work of interacting with the phenomena. And so this track is the first one. It was created with the intention of being used as a tool for those who wish to, to engage with the phenomena in a matter which is beneficial, productive, and minimally disruptive to them and their surroundings. It was inspired by the strange events reported at Rendlesham Air Force Base on the nights of December 26th through 28th, 1980, and features audio recorded by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt at that time. The music video that I made for it features the text which Jim Pennison reported to have downloaded after coming in contact with a nuts and bolts craft. So after looking into this particular case a little bit, and I apologize for being a wet blanket here, I really do, but I do believe that it's likely the result of a prank on the part of the British with some later, I don't know, maybe attention-seeking mixed in on the part of some of the American players, but it's also undeniable that the time of recording the audio... Halt, who was a pretty staunch skeptic, if the reports are to be believed, was experiencing something strange. Very strange. Even if the Randallstrom Forest cakes were a hoax or prank or whatever, it's regarded as being very important in the community from what I can gather by looking into it. 
It's taken on a sort of life of its own in the minds of people who are into this stuff. And this gives it some interesting qualities I think we could associate with it being like maybe like an egregore or something adjacent like that. It's interesting to think about this liminal space between the hoax, the joke, just going through the motions of prayer or ritual or whatever, and the point at which things actually begin to coalesce and manifest. I think about the magician from the Tarot sometimes here, um, sometimes depicted as running a sort of like three-card Monty game or whatever outside of the gates, which are guarded by the high priestess, of where the mysteries take place as the sort of like initiator, the, you know, the spark that sparks the fire. Uh, the magician archetype has a foot in both the world of the mundane, where sometimes he's like, shows up as like a confident scammer or like a fuckboy or whatever. Sorry to use that term. I know it offends some people. I apologize. Um, and the sacred, where he is the spark that lights the fire or whatever. So I think the Rendlesham forest case has like big magician energy for this reason for me. And how it's regarded within the UFO or UFA community kind of like vibes that way. So I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to check out all the great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. And regardless of when you hear this episode, I hope you've been having the opportunity to spend some quality time with your fellow monsters and weirdos and are doing well amid this mad, sad, terrifying, and beautiful world. Many thanks to Professor Patricia McCormick for joining me. And thanks to everyone for being so chill about me taking a bit of time off from the show. I needed it, and I'm so stoked to be back in the saddle. Fuck yeah. Most of all, thanks so much to you for listening. Much love. This is Lux Estrada, reminding you to stay strong and stay fucking curious. Here's Eyes of Your Eyes, featuring Folds and Floods. Cheers. Thank uh-huh.
Luxacult is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Hey, Luxa, what do you have there? It looks like a tattered old Discord server. Oh, this old thing? It's pretty beat up. But if I do this... Sweet! Now that you peeled off the outer bits, it looks fresh as hell. We should call it the Green Machine. Awesome! I fucking hate it! That's okay. It should function alright, but it would probably work better if we had more people. Yeah! We have an awesome crew of chaos, occultists, socialists, witches, and weirdos, but there's always room for more. Absolutely. If you'd like to take part in any of our many chats, rituals, workshops, clubs, and more, hit me up and I will send you a link. You can reach me at luxacultpod at gmail.com or at luxacultpod on Instagram. And remember, resist. Hi, I'm Frater Yarmarud. And I'm Zarina. And we'd like to introduce you to Administrism. What is Administrism? As an occultist, for years I felt the universe directing me towards a practice that was ecologically based with a foundation laid out by cultures untouched by the influence of what's become modern Western society. With labels like shamanism and neo-shamanism carrying too much uncomfortable post-colonial baggage, I've decided to take my own approach. Join Yara and me as we research and develop a magical system where we recognize our place in nature with all the life that surrounds us. We want to share with you our journey into a paradigm that incorporates ritual and ecology, anthropology and metaphysics, biology, and the occult. Using ethically sourced material, historical accounts, ethnographic records, and our own personal experience, we want to share our discoveries as we watch administrism grow in an organic blend of traditional spirituality, modern science, and a dash of homesteading, without all the connotations associated with labels like shamanism. We hope that by listening to how administrism sprouts in us, it will plant its seeds into your own practice. This way, you can find your own balance between magic and nature. Because the world needs room for both. And don't forget, you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Are you heartbroken? Having trouble letting go of that special someone? Here at Illumin Industries, we understand the complex web of strife and heartache that is mortal existence. That's why we created Forever Friend, a revolutionary advancement in companionship science. Thanks to new changes in the law, it is now possible to transfer someone's digital imprint to one of our specially designed furry friends. Imagine cuddling up at night with a cat or dog that combines the fluffy softness of a Persian and the personality point markers of your ex-fiance, or the loyalty of a golden retriever with the skill for trivia of your dead husband. Forever Friends are carefully engineered to be hypoallergenic, hyper-enhanced, and gluten-free, allowing for hours of authentic feeling conversation. Conversation mode can be switched off through the Forever Friend app for those times when you'd prefer to be alone with your thoughts. Choose from over 20 breeds of dogs and cats with a variety of color options, with bird options coming soon. The possibilities are endless. Forever Friends, softer than the real thing. Illumin, making it work for you. See Cyber Catalog for details and information about the Forever Friend privacy policy. Illumin Industries and its affiliates reserve the right to change these policies at any time without notice. All conversations with Forever Friends may be recorded for quality control and optimization purposes. Quality of Forever Friends personality emulation is dependent on data richness of digital imprint, not responsible for actions of Forever Friends.